Uh, we're going to look this evening at the victory, the victory of Christ. Um, we've been considering ways uh, in which to understand the work of Christ, uh, categories, biblical categories, uh, and theological categories to understand and summarize what it is uh, that Jesus has done for us. Uh, and we've used uh, extra biblical words like uh, satisfaction and substitution, uh, two important terms we saw, especially how uh, the Westminster Confession uh, summarizes the work of Christ as satisfying the justice of God, satisfying the justice of God. Uh, we've also looked at some biblical terms, terms like uh, redemption, uh, that I think you looked at last week with Dr. Davis, uh, terms like propitiation, terms like reconciliation, uh, terms like sacrifice. Uh, one of the words that we looked at very early on was the category of obedience, uh, viewing the work of Christ as fulfilling uh, a task that the Father had given to him. I have, I have completed the work which you have given me uh, to do. Uh, we covered things like the active and passive obedience of Christ, uh, viewing the whole of his life uh, as an act of obedience, uh, but also uh, his death upon the cross as an act of obedience. Uh, we've looked at ways in which uh, the work of Christ can be summarized as the, as the catechism, the shorter catechism, summarizes the work of Christ in terms of the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And in many ways, uh, tonight's uh, theme uh, is a reflection on the fulfillment of the work of Christ as a king. Uh, the triumph of Christ, the, the kingly rule and reign or the victory uh, of Christ. Uh, so the Shorter Catechism, question and answer 26. How does Christ uh, execute the office of a king? And Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And it's that theme, that, that note of conquering. And in particular, conquering not just sin and not just death and not just uh, the grave, but conquering over the forces of evil, over the forces of darkness, conquering over principalities and powers, a phrase in the New Testament that often alludes to uh, the demonic powers, the, the unseen uh, forces of opposition arraigned against uh, Christ. Uh, you, see it, you see a little glimpse of it in the book of Job, when, when there comes a day when Satan has to give an account of himself to God and, and there is this, this bigger picture. There is Job, there is his sickness, there is his grieving, there is his loss. 
But then there's a bigger picture, and it's God and Satan. Uh, the, the forces, the unseen forces uh, that, that Christ must also conquer in order to gain uh, the victory uh, for us over, over uh, not only the world and the flesh, but also the devil. Uh, and it's, it's, that, it's that aspect of Christ's uh, rule, Christ's uh, conquering the devil that is the theme uh, here this evening. Now, I, I want to allude briefly to some history, and, and some of you, uh, some of you, are um, history buffs and, and more interested in the history than, than others. So I'm, I'm trying to find a sort of middle way here through the history buffs and the non-history buffs. And, and uh, if this was a uh, if this was a seminary classroom, uh, I'd probably spend, you know, an hour or so talking about um, the, the views of the early church fathers with regard to uh, the atonement. You know, when we, think of, when we think of the doctrine of justification, we, we typically go to Martin Luther uh, in the first quarter of the 16th uh, century. Uh, when, we, when, we, when we've been talking about ideas like satisfaction and substitution, we've gone to Anselm of Canterbury, but we're in the 12th century for that. Uh, and we've kind of passed over. What happened then in the first thousand years? Did the church not understand these things for a thousand years? And, uh, and um, the truth is that the church understood a lot of things in the first three or four centuries. And all the, all the stuff that we did last Semester, we were doing the person of Christ. We we covered things like the Chalcedonian Confession and the Nicene Creed and so on. And and those are fourth and fifth century statements that are still looked at as foundational to this day with regard to the person of Christ. But when it comes to the work of Christ, the church fathers, and by which I mean, I mean from the time of the apostles to, say, the time of Augustine in the 5th century, that, that period of, of church history can often uh, find itself uh, on, several, uh, on several pages. Uh, there, isn't, uh, there isn't uniformity in uh, those early years. And, and I've, uh, I've mentioned a few, this is uh, summarizing now an, an hour's worth of stuff into a few minutes, uh, folk like uh, Justin Martyr from 100 to 165, Irenaeus from 130 to 202, uh, Origen 182 to 254, and then skipping forward a little to the 4th century, uh, Gregory of Nyssa. All of these to some degree, and... and and, and I am summarizing here, and anyone listening to this online or something and says, I, I don't know my church fathers, I am, I am wholly conscious here of summarizing a great deal, and there are differences between these four individuals, but all of them, to some extent or another, were advocating an understanding of the atonement that, first of all, saw the need for atonement in terms of having to pay a ransom to the devil, of having to pay a redemption price to the devil. And I'm, 
I've lifted just one example here from uh, the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, his great catechism, and this comes from chapter 24. Uh, For since, as has been said before, it was not in the nature of the opposing power to come in contact with the undiluted presence of God, the opposing power here is, is of course, satanic, and to undergo, undergo his unclouded manifestation. Therefore, you know, Jesus can't come into direct contact with Satan, or Satan doesn't want to come into direct contact with Jesus. And in order for this ransom to be paid, therefore, in order to secure that the ransom in our behalf might be easily accepted by him who required it, the deity, Jesus, was hidden under the veil of our nature that so, as with ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of the flesh. And thus, life being introduced into the house of death and light shining in darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to light and life might vanish. Wow, wow, that's a lot of stuff. Um, And uh, Gregory of Nyssa is giving a typical understanding. Uh, Origen would have said much the same. Irenaeus would have said it perhaps not as dramatically as uh, as, uh, Gregory of Nyssa and Justin Martyr, perhaps even less dramatically uh, still. But, But here's the idea. A ransom has to be paid to the devil. There's no way the devil is going to let Jesus come anywhere near him. Light and darkness don't, don't come into contact with each other. So Jesus has to somehow camouflage. He has to somehow employ some kind of subterfuge to, to come into Satan's presence to, to, to pay him the ransom. Uh, like, like, a, like a bait and, and Satan swallows the bait and gulps it down without realizing that what he's gulped down is actually Jesus. Now, don't, try, don't think about it too deeply. Uh, it's, it's not worth thinking about too, too deeply. But that's, that's pretty much uh, the view held by many in the 3rd and 4th century. They believed in the necessity for atonement. They believed that a redemption price had to be paid, somebody had to die, blood had to be shed, a life had to be offered. Now, in, in many ways, this is not unlike the idea, say, of the Trojan horse uh, from the uh, Trojan Wars. We're going back a thousand years BC, uh, the Trojan Wars, you know, from, from uh, Virgil's Aeneid. Aeneid, uh, Virgil, the, that long Latin epic uh, poem, and uh, you, you remember the story, the Greeks had been plundering Troy for 10 years, uh, they, they had got absolutely nowhere, and then one day they, they, they get into their ships and they, they seem to be sailing away and they've left behind a, a horse, a wooden horse, that uh, the folks of Troy uh, wheel into the city as a kind of trophy of their victory. And then that night, do you remember what happens? Uh, the, the, the SS, uh, the, the, the Marines hidden within the horse emerge, open the gates of the city because the ships have returned in the cover of darkness and uh, Troy is plundered. 
Uh, it was a subterfuge. They thought they were getting a trophy of victory, a token of their victory from, uh, from the Greeks. But instead, inside, as they swallowed the bait, right, inside, there was Jesus. Right inside was the, was the means of their actual destruction. Now that view of the atonement, like the, it's sometimes called the Trojan horse view of the atonement, that view is problematic for a, a whole lot of reasons, but it's problematic because it probably gives too much power to the devil. It's problematic because at the heart of that view of the atonement is something that's kind of subterfuge that's kind of unethical that involves a lie or or a deception of course in war deception is perfectly fine you you are you are allowed to if you know when we talk about when we talk about always telling the truth it's not it's not always appropriate to tell the truth i know that's going to raise a whole slew of questions for another time but if you're in the military, you don't tell the truth. You create scenarios that, that at least give an impression that you're about to do something entirely different from what you're actually going to do. Uh, that's how police work, police investigations work. That's how the military works. So in war, it is not always appropriate to tell the truth. I know that's going to get me into all kinds of difficulty. And... and, and um, and so some, some would say that this Trojan horse view of the atonement is, is perfectly ethical because this is war. This is war. This is Jesus announcing war on the powers um, of darkness. So ransom to Satan. Uh, to whom is the ransom paid? I wasn't here last week, but... What did Dr. Davis say? To whom is the ransom paid? Who needs to be propitiated? God needs to be propitiated. The ransom is being paid to God. Well, in this view, the ransom is being paid to the devil. Who has seen, who has read the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis? That's this view. You understand that. When Aslan leaves the tent... And he goes to pay the ransom to, uh, to the, the white witch. Um, it's a ransom theory. It's a ransom to the devil theory. That was C.S. Lewis's understanding of the atonement. That the devil, in this case the white witch, needed, needed the ransom. But what the white witch didn't realize was that inside Aslan was deity. And, and he, he killed well, she killed Aslan, and Aslan came to life again. So there was a trick. There was a Trojan horse. You can put this, you can put this man to death, but you can't keep a good man down. So he comes up again, and it involves, uh, it involves a kind of subterfuge. But if you watch, if you haven't read the book, but you watch the movie, right? Next time you see Aslan being tied down on that altar and, the, and that white witch and she was perfectly cast for the job because she's mean <laughs> next time you see that you just think that's a ransom to satan view of the atonement i know i know you have a love affair with c.s lewis but he was not orthodox on his doctrine of the atonement 
That's also going to get me into a huge bunch of trouble. Uh, enter, let me, let me skip forward uh, from uh, the first five centuries and let me, let me come to the beginning of the 20th century and a uh, uh, very handsome looking fellow, I mean incredibly handsome looking fellow, Gustav Aulen, uh, looks there in his sort of middle to late 20s or early 30s. Uh, Gustav Allen, Swedish Lutheran uh, theologian, uh, wrote a book, it's not terribly orthodox, uh, called Christus Victor. It's one of these books um, that it contains a seedbed of truth that had been neglected for so long uh, that the book sort of gained momentum. Don't get it in the bookstore. Don't, don't even think about it. It, it's, it. it has a lot of error in it, but right in the heart of it is this view of, of a, a ransom, a ransom uh, being paid. And the opposite of that, or, or the counterpart to the ransom being paid, is the idea of victory. That in, uh, in the atoning work of Christ, he, he is the victor. He emerges victorious. He conquers Satan. He conquers the powers of darkness. Now, the, the English translation uh, came into being in 1931. Uh, and it, it has become one of these books that, that, that has a kind of life of its own. And, and, and everyone seems to be citing Gustav Aulen's uh, Christus Victor. I, I'm perfectly certain that 99% of them have never read the book, but, they, but they're always citing this book by, by Gustav Aulen. So, so let's get into it. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's go right back to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis 3.15, uh, the first gospel promise. Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head, fatal. In other words, that in the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 is the idea that Satan is going to be destroyed. That Satan, Satan is going to be defeated. That, that the seed of the woman, understood here to be Jesus, the seed of the woman will be victorious. He will be bruised in his heel in the process, but, but Satan's head will be bruised. Well, think of Psalm 68. Uh, this is a psalm that's uh, cited in Ephesians chapter 4 um, about uh, the ascension of Jesus. Uh, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. And this is a picture, you can imagine the picture now, when somebody comes back from battle in the ancient world, uh, victorious, a general perhaps would come back from battle and he would, he would lead uh, the slaves, he would lead the spoils of war up the main street and, and receive his crown, his laurel uh, in the Roman Empire. He'd receive the, 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 the laurel wreath and the acclamation of the crowds and there before you would be the spoils of war. Slaves and gold and silver and jewels and, 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 and who knows what. Uh, Isaiah 53, we think of Isaiah 53 in terms of the sufferings of Christ, but that's not, 
That's not the conclusion of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is not about the suffering of the servant so much as it is about the victory of the servant. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So, so here's, the, here's the victor in battle uh, distributing the spoils to his people, to his, to his men uh, who have fought with him in the battle and so on. That's the picture. Well, let's, uh, let's go into the New Testament. Um, you know, the temptations of Jesus. In Luke 4, Matthew 4, uh, turn this stone into bread, uh, taken to the high pinnacle of the temple and told to jump and, and, and uh, angels would come lest you dash your feet against a, a, a rock and so on. These temptations. And, and we read those temptations and, and we tend, I say we, I'm using the generic we now, you, you're better informed, but, but we tend to read those temptations and ask the question, what is this saying to me? And, and, and just as Jesus was tempted, so we are tempted. But that's not the point of those temptations. The, the first question is not, what is this saying to me? But what is this saying about Jesus? That Satan would appear right at the beginning of his ministry and tempt him to this degree. Now you understand you know, Satan doesn't come personally to you and me. Now, we, we talk about being tempted by the devil and so on. He, 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 doesn't ha- he doesn't need to come. He's not ubiquitous. He can't be in more than one place at any one time. He'll t- he can send an intern. He can send a, a, a lowly intern, as Lewis's screw tape letters makes all too clear. Um, you know, an intern can come and tempt us, and he can do the job just fine. Satan doesn't have to come in person. But to Jesus, he has to come in person. Satan knew who Jesus was, and he has to come in person to tempt him. Now, you know, careful, there is a strand of teaching in the New Testament that tells us that we are to resist the devil. We're to be strong, we're to be soldiers, we're to resist the devil, we're to conquer the devil. Uh, Bunyan's uh, holy war, Thomas Brooks's precious remedies against Satan's devices, William Gurnall's the Christian incomplete uh, armor, and, and so on. All of those are, are, are addressing our battle against Satan. But, but, but it's not our battle against Satan that's in view here. It is Christ's battle. Against The reason why we can conquer against the devil is because he has conquered as our substitute and as our sin bearer. Think of Jesus' words, you know, when he sent out the 70. Uh, and they come back and, and Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It, it was a little, it was a little glimpse. It was a little teaser. It, it was like the... What do you call it? The trailer before the movie is, is released. There's a trailer. You go on, on the websites and, and you can watch a two-minute little, little trailer of the, of the movie. Uh, a, a, like an hors d'oeuvre, like, a, like an appetite, an appetizer. And uh, Jesus is saying, I saw him fall like 
lightning from heaven. Now, it's an anticipation of something that Revelation 20 will speak of when he is, when he is cast into outer darkness. Uh, you know, he's on chains, he's released, and then, and then he's cast into outer darkness. And, uh, and, and Jesus sees a prophetic anticipation Oh, let me use some big words here. A prophetic eschatological anticipation of, of the downfall and destruction of Satan. He saw a little glimpse of it. He saw a trailer of it in the mission of the, of the 70. Or John 14 in the upper room, rise and let us go from here. Now, the problem with that statement at the end of John 14 is that they don't actually go anywhere until chapter 18. I mean, Jesus says, rise, and then you've got chapters 15, 16, and 17. You know, all that stuff about the vine and the branches, all that stuff about the coming of the paraclete, the, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, all that, all that stuff that John says about the high priestly prayer, right? Jesus says, rise, let us go, and nobody moves. And there is an interpretation, not everybody accepts this, but some just think John made a mistake. Well, that's unacceptable. The Bible is inerrant, the Bible is infallible, so we don't, we, we don't ever adopt, you know, silly explanations like that. You know, if it's obvious to us when, when, when there are three chapters between saying rise and let us go and actually rising and going, it was obvious, don't you think, to John who actually wrote it? You know, John probably checked it several times before he let it go. Don't you think it would have been obvious to the first reason? John, John, you, you need to move this to, to, to chapter 18 and verse 1 because nobody moves. Actually, the word rise and let us go, the Greek word is a military word. And, and Jesus is not saying to the disciples, you know, get up and, and, and let's leave the upper room and go to the Garden of Gethsemane. What, what he's actually saying is prepare yourselves for battle because the moment of battle is upon me, Jesus is saying. Or Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And, and there's the idea again of victory over the powers of darkness, victory over, over the demonic, victory over Satan himself. And perhaps um, most importantly of all, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Right? God gains victory over the powers of darkness in Jesus Christ. There's the theme of victory. Victory over evil. Victory over the powers of darkness. Victory over Satan. Now it's not... How, how do you interpret all of these verses? And we've, 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 just, we've just done a, a grand tour from Genesis now. And you could go to Revelation 20 uh, and, and, and Satan being, being cast into outer darkness. So you've gone from... 
from Genesis to Revelation and what have you seen that at the heart of the redemptive work of Christ is this theme of victory. Now, what are the, what are the theological implications of the idea of victory? Well, one, of course, is the destruction of Satan. Satan has no real claim on you anymore. You know, if you are in Christ, if, if, you, are, if, you, if you believe in Jesus, if you're indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, if you are in union with Jesus Christ, Satan does not really have any claims on you. Now, the problem is that we just don't believe that. Like when Satan comes knocking on the door, we begin to shake and tremble. You know, when, when, when Satan knocked on Luther's door, and Luther thought Satan actually did knock on his door, he would throw his ink pot at the door, and he would yell out, Luther doesn't live here anymore. A man in Christ lives here now. Right, that was a very Luther kind of thing to do. Um, but, but you see the truth of what he's saying. You know, Satan comes knocking on our door, and he says, jump, and we say, how far? But he doesn't have any claims on you. In other words, you must not listen to him. Satan lives in denial. He constantly lives in denial. Because in in one sense, the victory has already been won. It was won at the cross. Now the final victory awaits the end. It's a a bit like the difference between D-Day... And VE Day, or victory in, in Europe, or victory in, 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 the, in the East, in Japan. You know, after, after D Day, I mean, the war went on, what, a year, uh, a year or more? And some of the most fierce fighting of all took place after D Day. But it was understood then, as now, by historians who look back on the history of the Second World War that the turning point of the war was D-Day. Once once D-Day had been victorious at huge cost, of course. I I remember, sidebar for a minute, I I remember taking my children, I remember taking our children to to, uh, the Normandy beaches, and uh, it, it was, I think, one of the most moving um, experiences of my life. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a military kind of aficionado. I don't tell civil war stories like Dr. Davis or anything. Uh, I, I would have to do a lot of research to pull those stories out. But, but I have to say, when I, went, when I went to the Normandy beaches and we went to several of the, of the, um, the, the, the pristine, uh, immaculately kept... Uh, um, graveyards uh, and the playing of, uh, of taps and, and, and uh, uh, just, just walking up and down looking at crosses and the occasional star of David uh, in, in, in straight rows, white, white just, just immaculate uh, and, and, then, and then thinking as, as you see these thousands and thousands of them of uh, 
of young men who died at Normandy and uh, died in, on D-Day. Um, but but D-Day was the decisive victory. The ultimate mopping up of the war would take a while, and, and, and we're in that interval now. But you look back at the cross and you say, the victory is won. At the resurrection of Jesus, he was victorious over the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So you need to learn to do what Luther did. And when Satan comes knocking, makes you afraid, challenges your trust in the promises of God, tempts you to violate his law, tempts you to, to do something that is, that is contrary to God's will, you, you tell him, you have no claims on me. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to obey you anymore. I was once a child of the devil, as Jesus would say. I was once a child of the devil, but now I'm, the, I'm a son of God. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm adopted into the family of God. I belong to him now. So, the destruction of Satan. Secondly, the dominion of Christ. These are, these are obvious uh, implications, of course, but the dominion of Christ. That, that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He sits on a throne. He has power. He, he occupies a position of glory. All authority, the, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and in earth is given unto me. The, the reason why Jesus can send us out into the world to make disciples in Madrid or in Poland as we're considering our Easter offering of planting churches. Why, why in the world would we think that planting a church in Madrid or in Poland or in Warsaw or wherever would, would ever be successful? Because all authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. Because he assures us of the victory. The question, of course, is whether you believe that. Or whether you allow the epistemology of this world, whether you allow a worldly frame of mind to make you cynical or make you doubt or make you conform to the patterns and ideas of this world. Uh, Philippians 2.9, he has been highly exalted and given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he's God. Or Hebrews 1.3, he has sat down at the right hand of God. Now, you, you understand the significance of sitting down. Um... At the um, Spiritual Life Conference on the Friday evening, uh, Dan arranged that uh, musical uh, part at the very beginning. We sang a number of hymns, and uh, my wife complained that we had to stand for three hymns without, without any kind of break. And, you know, we need to sit down. She said, we're not talking about that kind of sitting down because you're tired. 
Who sits down when other people stand? You have to think in, in a monarchy frame of mind now. The queen, a king, a sovereign. Uh, when, uh, when she opens parliament, for example, um, and, and it's a ritual that happens at the beginning of every, of every parliamentary session, she knocks on the door, it's a, I won't go into all the history, the doors are closed, she's barred, she knocks on the door, she's allowed in, it's a little symbolic thing about the difference between the crown and the, and the parliament and so on. And then she comes in, but all, everyone's standing, but she sits, she sits on the dais, she sits on a, on a kind of throne. Well, this is the image here. Now, I know we are all Republicans in the sense of non-monarchy, right? Don't, don't, I don't want more letters about that. Um, but, but you understand the image here. He sat down, meaning, meaning he's king. You know, sitting down is a, is, a, is a very confident posture, isn't it? You know, there's one place in the New Testament where we read of Jesus standing up at the death of Stephen. He, he stood Look it up in Acts, at the death of Stephen. It's quite unusual that he stands as though outraged by what's happening. You know, he gets up from his throne. But, but sitting is a, is a very confident posture of rule and reign. You know, when you're agitated, what do you do? Well, if you're like me, you pace. You know, you walk back and forth and, and, and you can't sit. I can't sit. And, and your wife will say, sit down. And you say, I can't sit. You know, I'm, 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 I'm worrying about this thing. I'm concerned about this thing. And you can tell me afterwards not to worry. But, but I'm trying to make an illustration here about the, the posture of sitting. Or uh, uh, Colossians 1.18, in all things he has the preeminence. Uh, Revelation 5, uh, 6 and following, before John sees the tribulations and the pestilences and the bowls of of wrath and the trumpets of wrath and so on. He sees a lamb on the throne and his assurance comes from that. So right at the beginning of Revelation you have that, that beautiful uh, depiction. It's probably one of the most spectacular depictions uh, in Scripture of a, a lamb who is sitting upon uh, a throne. So the destruction of Satan, the dominion of Christ, and then a third idea that, that Jesus' victory over the powers of darkness ushers in a new age. Um, theologians call it realized eschatology. Um, it, it's, like, it's like the end has perforated into the now. I expect you to use that language now in an email. The, the end, the, the final victory has perforated into the now. So what does Peter say on the day of Pentecost? In these last days, in these last days, it shall come to pass in the last days. He's quoting, of course, from Joel. But, but from Pentecost onwards, post-resurrection, post-ascension, we are in the last days. I used to have a, a, a when, in my first pastorate, there was a lady, uh, she, was, she was a sweetie, but uh, she was 86, 7 when I first knew her, and she was way into her 90s but when, I, when I left, and, and she 
she died before I left, but uh, Miss Maxwell is who I'm speaking of. And Miss Maxwell would read uh, the headlines, you know, some terrible thing had happened, and she'd say, the last days are coming. And I would try, you know, I was a, I was a young pastor, and I, I would always try to correct her, no, we're already in the last days. And she would nod knowingly, yes, look at these headlines, the last days are coming. And I would say, no, they've actually come, we're right, we're right in them. Uh, and these things, earthquakes and, and so on, I mean, the earthquake in Chile yesterday was, was, was one of the signs, we're in the last days. In the last days, there will be tribulation, and not because of something, something in, the, in the few years before Jesus comes, but from Pentecost onwards. We've always been in the last days, ever since the time of Pentecost. Or, or think of Paul in Galatians 4.4, uh, 4, um, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made subject to the law, and so on. In the fullness of time. And Paul isn't thinking there of... Uh, you know, the commonality of the language of Greek or the, the ease of transport because of Roman roads and so on, making the gospel so much easier to go from Jerusalem throughout Europe and so on. When he, when he says in the fullness of times, what he, what he means is that all of Old Testament prophecy has now come to its fullness in the coming of Jesus. This is what it was all about. We, we are now in a new age. Similarly, uh, Hebrews 1-2, in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. Uh, 1 John, 1 John 2-18, little children, this is the last hour. So, uh, it ushers in a new age. Uh, then, then D, it, it, it ensures the final destruction of the works of evil. You know, what are, the, what are the miracles of Jesus all about? You know, in one sense, Jesus doesn't go to every single city and heal every single individual. So, so what he is doing is a kind of foretaste. There's a, there's, a, there's a kind of discipline to exorcisms and, and healings and nature miracles and so on. He doesn't maximize those. There were still sick people. What he's saying is that this, this is what his death has actually accomplished and it will be fulfilled in the new heavens and in the new earth. All that the devil has done, all that the evil powers do, and in a sense continue to do, will one day be brought to a complete end in the new heavens and in the new earth in which there will be righteousness and perfection and glory and, and, and beauty and so on. But it also has uh, implications here for the end uh, end of the tyranny of sin in believers. Uh, this is, of course, Paul's uh, argument in Romans 6, uh, that sin, uh, sin does not reign in your mortal bodies. You know, we have, we have died with Christ, we have been raised with Christ. You know, John Owen, John Owen once said, 
that there are two pastoral conditions, two main pastoral conditions. One is convincing unbelievers that they are under the dominion of sin. And the other is convincing believers that they are not. Now, that's a huge oversimplification for sure, um, but, but think about it. it. It can all boil down to convincing an unbeliever that he's under the dominion of sin and convincing a believer that he is not, that he's in union with Christ. Uh, it ensures the conquest of death. You know, that's what Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 says when it says... Um, Somewhere. Hebrews two fourteen and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And, and the book of Hebrews seems to be saying that one of the things that Satan exploits the most is the fear of death. And, you know, not everybody walks around terrified of dying. Most people walk around not wanting to think about it at all. They put it out of their minds entirely because they don't want to have to think about it. But in Jesus, as we're about to enter into Holy Week and and, and Easter Sunday and resurrection, in, in Jesus Christ, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And then, and then finally, he puts, uh, puts Christ in a position where he is able to apply the redemption he has accomplished. You know, what does the victory of Jesus over the powers of darkness really mean? And, and this, as I say here, is the most important point of all. That if Jesus wasn't victorious, he wouldn't be able to apply what he has achieved to us. The reason that we can be justified, the reason that we can be adopted into his family, the reason that we can entertain the hope of glory is because he has been victorious. So that's that's uh, um, that's an aspect. It was it was hugely neglected uh, during the period of the Reformation. It's not a huge theme in in the Reformation, Um, but it is something that has come back. Uh, into the spotlight again as one of a kaleidoscopic uh, way of understanding what Jesus has accomplished. And what he has accomplished is victory. Victory over the powers of darkness and victory over uh, Satan in particular. So let's pray together. Father, uh, as as we spend this time together reflecting on the work of our Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that he has gained the victory over Satan. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we are to resist him steadfast in the faith. And so tonight we want to remind ourselves that Satan has no ultimate power over us. We, we may believe that he does and therefore do things and obey him when we need not do so because we are in Christ now 
And we are indwelt by the Spirit now, and we are in union with the Lord Jesus now, and we are your children now. And so help us, Lord, as we reflect on these things, so to uh, give you praise and glory for the victory of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.